this really helped me when I stumbled across this insight in my entrepreneurial journey. So what it boils down to is that you dramatically overestimate how much you can accomplish in any single given day, but you also dramatically underestimate how much you can accomplish over a period of time simply by showing up each day and giving it your all. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat, and we're always here to help. Now, today we've got another great uh, guest on the podcast, Breen Sullivan. And uh, Breen uh, is uh, from Alaska and uh, went to high school there. And then afterwards, uh, went to uh, Yale and I think or did uh, theater studies um, and then moved to Morocco and uh, taught school for a period of time. Afterwards, uh, moved to L.A. and did some work there um, and then moved uh, back to New York and was doing things in the theater. Uh, went to law school and then went to Italy and worked for GE, um, like the mediation and alternative dispute resolution. Um, and so came back to New York and was an IP attorney um, after my own heart and then uh, went in house after after that at a, a technology company um, and worked for uh, uh, three different tech, uh, tech startups over a period of uh, 10 years before uh, starting her own business, which is uh, what she's doing now and uh, recently uh, lost or launched a, a platform back in 2020, which she'll also share a bit more about that. So with that much as an introduction, welcome, welcome on to the podcast, Breen. Well, thank you so much, Devin. I'm really excited to be here. And you, you definitely summed up my uh, my whole life in a nutshell. That was really well done. <laughs> All right. Well, if we could uh, all sum up our, our lives in uh, 30 seconds, I guess uh, it, uh, it it means that we've had a good uh, a good journey. So, so I uh, I. Uh, took your life and then condensed it to the 30 second version, but let's uh, go back and unpack that a bit. Uh, so tell us a little bit about how your journey got started uh, in Alaska and uh, going to high school there. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. So like you said, I was born and raised in Alaska. That actually makes me a sourdough. That is the technical term. Um, there aren't that many of us. It is true. I was, I was actually born on a tiny little rainforest island called Ketchikan. Ketchikan, Alaska is where I am from. But we left the, the small island. I ended up going to uh, school, like uh, grade school, junior high, high school, largely in Anchorage, which is the big city in Alaska, um, if you call it that. It has gotten bigger uh, since, you know, back when I was there. Um, so, yes, it was a fantastic place to grow up in many respects. Uh, there's, you know, there was a lot that I would not change for the world. Um, interesting fact, it actually does not snow in Ketchikan, Alaska. It's a rainforest. So the first time I saw snow was in the lower 48, which usually blows people's minds. Um, but yeah, so born and raised there, went to college um, in New Haven, Connecticut, went to Yale, it's in New Haven. For me, that was a tropical climate because it was daylight in the morning when it was cold and it was dark at night when it was warm which those things don't exist in Alaska. So um, growing up in Alaska, that like, you know, having that adjustment to, I, I'm probably the one student in the history of Yale that felt like I was moving to a tropical climate um, in, <laughs> in Connecticut. 
So now one, or one maybe quick question. So you went to DL and I think you did theater studies. Is that right? So I was, you know, I was undergrad there and yes, I was a theater studies major. The way people often get confused when I say that, they think of the, of the MFA program, the drama school at Yale is, you know, incredibly famous. That was not where I was. <laughs> I was an undergrad. So yes, that was my major. Um, but when you're an undergrad at Yale, you, you know, you still get a well-rounded well education um, regardless of major. Awesome. So, and, and just, or, and one, maybe just to follow up to that, you know, what was the motivation? Did you always picture being an, an actress or being in the movies or doing, you know, commercials or being on Broadway or kind of what was kind of the, the path that you were envisioning as, as you're going into that? <laughs> well, you know, I was pragmatic enough to realize pretty early on that uh, Broadway was probably out of the question because I have a very bad instrument. So anyone that knows me, I, you know, internally, like I cannot sing at all. So I am not a triple threat. Um, that that was just not even in the cards. So you know, I never had that illusion. Um, you know, I loved I loved theater. I loved that. I think more than anything else, I love kind of the intellectual side of theater. I, you know, the thought process, the motivations, just what drives people to do things. And I firmly believe that all the world is a stage, in fact. So, you know, being a lawyer, whatever you do, whatever you're you're pursuing in this life, you are you are an actor. <laughs> you are on stage. Um, so I think that kind of philosophical, intellectual parts of it, I was probably the most interested in. Uh, it was, I also did love performing, but um, so sure, fantasies of that. But I, I, I moved to LA. This was after Morocco, which you had mentioned. Um, but I was in and out in less than a year. You know, I did, I did try. I actually made a couple of commercials. I was on Mad TV a few times. I did, in, there is indeed a reel of me somewhere out there that I think I made my parents unpublish on YouTube because it was just like, oh my God. Um, but uh, but no, I, it, in the end, not for me. I mean, I'm, I'm a kid from Alaska that grew up without a television. So I had no place in Hollywood in, you know, in the early aughts. Didn't make sense. Well, fair enough. And, you know, once it hits the internet, it never quite disappears. So there's probably a reel out there somewhere, but uh, that's, uh, that's great. So, so now sure. you did that and you, so you graduated. And I think after you, you know, tried a few things, you moved to Morocco and taught at school at a school. Is that right? I did indeed. I moved to Casablanca, Morocco. I taught in the American school there. It was amazing. It was an incredible experience. Now my timing in my life has been really impeccable. I moved to the Arab world three weeks before 9-11, which, you know, this dates me, but that was, you know, what an incredible time to, to make a move like that and then have an experience like that. Because, you know, I look back on it, I mean, sure, it was an intense and tumultuous year. There was a lot of uncertainty. Um, being an American, you know, in Morocco, no one knew, you know, when that it was just the world just changed overnight so dramatically. Um, but being able to have that perspective of, of not just listening to Fox News or CNN or, you know, even the BBC, but rather Al Jazeera, you know, having other perspectives, living in a different culture, you know, living in this North African culture when this was happening, you know, all over the global landscape, it just, it, it enabled me to, you know, it was really, really valuable as a young person to and be forced into having that kind of perspective. So I'm really grateful for that. And um, and then also just Morocco is 
an unbelievably beautiful, incredible country. The people are amazing. The, you know, the school is phenomenal. My students were just, you know, it was just so much fun. So I'm really grateful I got to do that. No, that's awesome. So now, and how long, how long did you, or were you in Morocco for? So it was just a year. I w- it was a program. Um, so it was one year and then I could have stayed. I thought about it, but this is when I felt like I had to move to Hollywood and I had to try to be a movie star. So, you know, the time was then, you know, I had to seize the moment. So I, I made the move. I, I gave it a try, but you know, we already talked about that. Uh, also, I have to point out that Los Angeles before GPS and before Uber, very different place. So mm. <laughs> that that was what I put myself into. No way was I was that going to work out. Um, so then, you know, yes, then left left LA, came to New York, and really loved New York. It was just so much fun. It was it was a blast. It was too much fun, you know, probably, which is why my my mom she's like, "What are you doing?" Uh, which is how I ended up being a lawyer. I was definitely having too much fun in New York. Uh, I, but I was, you know, the audience, not not the actor, which was really fun. Um, and, you know, New York itself is just so incredibly entertaining. Then went to law school. Um, and maybe just one quick question. So, I mean, you went to L.A. and then you came to New York. You know, sounds like you made a, made a pretty good go of it or an effort to get into the acting, theater, arts kind of industry was there kind of a point where you decided, hey, maybe this isn't for me or want to go in a different direction or kind of what prompted you to or motivated you to, to take the law school route? Well, you know, well, okay. On the one hand, I think law school is default for smart people. Like, I think this tends to happen. I also feel like if you look at theater majors at Yale anyway, a whole lot of them are lawyers now, um, a whole lot of them. The ones that are not lawyers are the ones that, you know, really just pounded the pavement and didn't stop from the time we graduated till now. And, you know, it's incredible to see their success in so many different ways. I have, you know, the Yale Mafia is real. It's, you know, I have friends doing incredible things that are, you know, friends that are now very well known um, and very talented. And I guess for me in those years, uh, what I realized was that that wasn't in me, like that when it came down to it, like if I, if I had no choice, but I had to pursue, you know, some aspect of the art, whether it was acting or it was writing or it was whatever it was, then um, I would have done it. But it, that, it wasn't that way for me. Like I could have, I could have done other things. Like I could live and breathe without it. And so when you realize that, if that's not how it is for you, then you should go broaden your horizons and open other doors. So, you know, law school, then it's that default for smart people, but also it does do that. You know, it broadens presence, it opens doors. And I, I 100% love the education of law school so much. And, you know, there are issues with the profession of law and the practice of law and, you know, how myopic and, you know, I, we could have a whole podcast on that, but I do think law school in and of itself, that education is valuable. It is, it changes it changes how you perceive the world around you. And no matter who you are and what you're trying to pursue, that additional insight is valuable. No, so I, I love, think... love that. Makes perfect sense. So so now you go off to law school and then uh, you, you studied uh, intellectual property or got into intellectual property. Is that the, kind of the, the path you took in law school? Or because I know you also we also talked a little bit before and you like mediation and alternative dispute resolution. So kind of uh, where did or, you know, so you go to law school. Where did you where did you go from there? 
Yeah, you know, no, I definitely wasn't focused on IP in law school. I, if anything, I was very interested in dispute resolution and then specifically kind of like international dispute resolution, mediation, really fascinated by that. Uh, kind of the fact that there is no, you know, there is no like world court. I mean, you know, there are some versions, but not really, right? Different, there's different types of law and different schools of thought and different systems in different countries. And I was just really fascinated by that. So on Tulane, New Orleans is a great place. If you have that kind of global perspective, there are amazing professors there. They have a great international program. So no, actually that was my focus more than anything else in law school. I ended, that's why I, I ended up moving to Italy after law school to work for General Electric in Florence. It was because of that interest and because of um, pursuing that in law school that I, I developed relationships with General Electric and then went and did this program with them because even though it was the litigation team, litigation in an international context like that is oftentimes that is, you know, international dispute resolution. That's what it is because when it's, you know, these global scale uh, you know, disputes, you're, you're, uh, especially construction, you know, in that world, you're talking about governments and you're talking about different systems of law and you're talking about arbitration. So that was my focus. But um, what happened was that in order to pull it all together in law school, it made sense to find a big law firm where I could go join as an associate and then go to Italy and work for GE, but do that on secondment, essentially, you know, while I already had the job secured at the large law firm in New York. So that's how I ended up being an IP lawyer. Like that was the job I got. You know, I feel like law school is kind of like that. I, this was my experience with law school. It's, you know, many people who ended up being whatever their discipline ended up being, they didn't start out knowing that that even existed. You know, they just kind of found themselves there because that was the firm that hired them or, you know, the job they got. No, makes uh, makes perfect sense and, and sounds like a good journey. To, and I agree. There's a lot of times some people go into law school knowing what they want to do. A lot of them you figure it out as you, you get out there and some people figure out they don't want to be a lawyer. They, they go in a different direction. So it right. takes all type. So, so now you right. went to Italy, worked for GE for a period of time, came back and uh, worked, uh, did IP law with uh, the bigger uh, New York law firm. And then I think at some point you mentioned that uh, you ended up going uh, in-house and working uh, uh, for a few different uh, tech startups for a period of time. Is that right? Yes, that's what I did. So when I, I, I landed back in that big law firm in New York, IP lawyer, then specifically international trademark law, which was very interesting for a year and a half. And then it wasn't interesting to me anymore and um, didn't play to my strengths and just not, you know, I really was concerned. Maybe I made a mistake. I liked the international part, but I didn't like the day-to-day -day grind of what I was doing. And, um, and so I was worried and I was starting to think outside the box and look at other just totally radically, like, how can I pivot? How can I shift? And I knew um, someone I went to college with, he had founded this energy efficiency startup in New York, and it was really early days for that company, but I loved the mission. He is one of the smartest people I, I know I've ever met in my life. And I just started talking to him over a period of several months, just basically trying to teach myself everything I could about energy efficiency and basically just convincing him, look, I don't really know what an in-house lawyer would do for a company like yours, but I have a feeling I could do something. And I also just love what you're doing. And no matter what, I know I could just bring value in some way. So I would love to just help you push this mission forward because I really cared about it. And I, and that was a big 
um, part that was missing for me at the big law firm. You know, when you're assisting these very large clients and you're kind of a cog in the wheel, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy. You don't feel like you are, uh, you know, entrepreneurial. You're not part of a team. You're not building something. I didn't feel that way. And so I really wanted that. And also he was very mission driven, which is very important to me. And, um, and so that was great. So I ended up being his first in-house legal hire. And I was there for three years. The business was very complex just because of the nature of energy efficiency. There was a lot going on. And, um, and it was an incredible opportunity. Like I look back on it and I feel like it was law school except for it was general counsel school. And so even though I earned a salary, like I would have paid for that. It was just so valuable because it really taught me, you know, it taught me all aspects of how, what it means to be in-house, which, you know, no one teaches you. You don't learn that in law school. You have to do it. You have to learn by doing. So I was there for three years, just absolutely loved it. Company grew a lot. I grew a lot. And, um, and then I went to a data analytics company and then I went to an ed tech company. So I, yeah. Okay. And one maybe follow-up question. So, you know, get into startups, get a, the, go to the school, school for general counsel, so to speak, and enjoy it and get a good education, you know, in the real world, so to speak. Now, what made you uh, switch between the different startups or kind of what uh, motivated the, the transition between the, the few different uh, companies? You know, I think in the moment, it was just part of the, you know, that it was exciting. Like I know when I was leaving the energy efficiency company, this, well, at the time it was a data analytics company. It has since evolved into more of a marketing company, um, you know, kind of found its stride, you know, it, it, like the, that company itself has grown and pivoted. But back when I was, when I was being recruited to join that company, it was really on the cutting edge of data science and data analytics. And there was, it was, it was, it was a very exciting um, opportunity and, uh, you know, just exciting team. And, you know, it felt like that kind of next level up of the company also had uh, more revenue. So it was like a larger company. So it, it really just was that it was just kind of like ready to uh, try another adventure. And um, and then that was a whole lot of fun as well. It was really exciting. There was in all three companies, there was a lot of growth, you know, during the course of me being, you know, over the tenure of the time that I was with the company. So it was really, really fun to be a part of that growth and to watch the growth and also mm -hmm. to learn and grow as the company is growing, you learn and grow and have to accommodate those new needs. So it's kind of like you're looking for bigger and bigger opportunities or companies. So I feel like I followed that trajectory. Um, the third company oh, is so similar story. It was a private equity portfolio company in the education technology space and had 500 employees and spanned, you know, multiple states and two different countries. So also the, the opportunity there was to be the chief administrative officer. So it was to oversee legal, but also human resources. Um, so that was you know, also appealing because it was, you know, it was a stretch and it was a stretch. I mean, all, every time I made a jump, <laughs> things got harder, uh, which I guess is the point, which is what you're trying to do. It's like, kind of like, you feel like, where's the next peak I have to scale or, you know, what am I, like, you have to be, like, I feel like if you're not feeling uncomfortable and kind of stretched, then I get nervous about that because then I feel like, what are you doing? Are you kind of treading water? Like, I don't know, which I guess leads me partially to why I'm doing what I'm doing now, which is, uh, you know, I mean, 
there were a few reasons. One, I just had a couple of insights over the course of being at these three companies that I couldn't stop thinking about once I noticed them. And so that was number one. And number two, certainly if I was looking for another peak to scale, wow, I found it. I mean, like there's literally nothing harder than trying to build your own thing. It is so hard. So, um, you know, I don't care how hard any any job is out there <clears throat> when it's not founding your own startup and trying to spin strong to gold. It's not as hard. <laughs> I really think that. Um, so, you know, so in that sense, looking for the next challenge, I definitely found it. But the, <clears throat> the insights that I had when I was in-house at those companies, partially it's because they were three different companies, you know, in terms of how they were structured and how they were funded. And the reason why this is relevant is because it impacted how they thought about governance, how they thought about their boards, or if they thought about it at all. Um, but, you know, whether or not they had advisory boards, they thought about advisory boards, did they have governing boards and independent director seats that were unfilled or that they were trying to fill? You know, what was it a priority? You know, were they leveraging them? So this, you know, this was something I was experiencing and I could see from my unique vantage point, you know, being at, at these companies, but like from the legal perspective, you have visibility into that, which a lot of people just don't have visibility into it. And then also I was connected to uh, large networks of general counsel and they were seeing similar things. So the, and the trend, like what I was seeing at my company is what all these GCs I knew, what they were seeing, it really boiled down to kind of a lack of um, like companies just kind of under leveraging their boards, full stop, you know, mm -hmm. like regardless of who would be tapped to fill those seats, a lot of times companies just weren't prioritizing the time, the energy, maybe, you know, sure, recruiter fees or, um, you know, they, they weren't necessarily making that a priority <laughs> to really think strategically, <laughs> sorry, about those boards and who would be best suited, what skill set, you know, who to bring on those boards. But I saw that. And then, um, and, and also it dawned on me that, you know, people are constantly talking about uh, about diversity on boards and getting women onto boards. And they're talking about a small number of board opportunities that are available or board seats that are filled. And everyone's ignoring this giant kind of unspoken reality of millions of companies out there that aren't actively, uh, you know, searching for candidates to fill their boards. So, um, you know, so that was one big insight. So now maybe one there. So, so you decided to make the jump said, okay, I've worked with a, not, a lot of startups. I've also had in-house counsel experience and, you know, kind of a culmination or aggregation of all of that experience. And so, and I agree, I think that unless you've actually done a startup or a small business, you've actually made the leap and ran it yourself. It, it is just one where you can't, you can't otherwise hear about or get that experience any other way. And at least, you know, I'm in agreement with you. It is or one of the hardest things that you can do. I don't know if I'm going to say the absolute hardest because there are probably harder things, but it is certainly up on that list of, of very hard things that you can do. So now when did you make the leap and, and when did you start the company and, and kind of how has it gone since you've uh, jumped over and started doing that? Yeah. So, so the things, you know, when I was noticing this under leveraging of boards and then I started noticing uh, male colleagues around me at these companies serving on boards. And having that like 
you know, help them kind of make the case that they were strategic and not tactical or get promoted or, you know, then they were investing and they were accessing these networks. But my female colleagues were not doing that. And it wasn't because we didn't want to. It was because there was no easy place for us to go. There was no marketplace that was aggregating them. There was no no access. Um, and, and I saw so clearly how that would help me personally in my own GC career. So I started to have this, this thought probably around 20, um, 2018, you know, 2017, 2018. And then it really formalized into a, a pretty clear idea. Like at the end of 2018, um, I started talking about it to everyone who would listen to me. And it was like the fall of 2018. And a, a reporter wrote an article about it. But really all it was was an idea and focus groups I was running. I was essentially um, <laughs> emailing groups of general counsel and founders that I knew and asking them to meet me at a WeWork and just, you know, talk about it. And um, and then it got picked up. There's this article written and just kind of overnight, you know, the website I had built. And this is while I'm still a general counsel by day, you know, just blows up and you know, hundreds of, of GCs are applying and want to join and want to be part of this thing. And so it started to, you know, pick up steam. It wasn't until 2020, um, really mid 2020, when I realized, okay, this can be a company in its own right. Now it's very difficult, the figuring out how to productize, how to monetize the, the value that we have created for the different stakeholders that come into our market network and, you know, get value. But, um, but it is possible to do that. And this can and should be a company that can scale and that can drive systemic change when it comes to the demographics of private company boards and cap tables in this country, which I think is a very worthy mission. Um, but also it can make a lot of money. So, you know, it's just not going to be easy, but there's an opportunity. And I really saw that like the summer of 2020 and then the stars aligned where, you know, it worked out. It was easy for me to be able to, to step away from the CAO position I had and start doing this full time. And I just, I just dove in and, um, and that, so that was like, you know, mid late 2020. And now we have, and so we were able to take, you know, once we really understood this could be a company in its own right, we were already um, toying with the idea of like getting this all into a technology platform that would help facilitate the exchanges. That's been a lot of the progress we've made since then, you know, the last two and a half years of moving platform to platform, building out platforms. And now we have this AI powered preference based very efficient matching platform, which can, and we have 800 companies that are now in the ecosystem, committed to the ecosystem. There's, we still have a few hundred we're loading in, but that's a lot of companies that are proactively using our board seat exchange, our investment club, you know, job board, other resources, finding value. And then on the candidate side, we have over 1,550 board ready women who are being matched to these board opportunities and investment opportunities because some of the companies are fundraising. That's a whole backroom investment club thing we have going on. Um, so, you know, now it's, we're able to orchestrate that value in a platform that people can access through memberships. Awesome. Sounds like uh, definitely a great journey and a great uh, kickoff to the, the, the business and uh, hopefully it uh, continues to proceed forward and even, uh, and, and continues to be successful. So, 
Well, now as we've caught up to the the present day of the journey and uh, and the great time to transition to the the two questions that I always ask at the end of each episode. Um, now, before we dive into those last two questions, uh, Breen has been uh, great and uh, sponsored this episode and uh, d- doing a free water bottle giveaway for entrepreneurial water bottles, which I love and uh, it really just uh, makes it a, a fun time. Um, so uh, why don't you go ahead and share and we, we do it intentionally that you have to listen to the promo code and then go to the website to order them so that you you can uh, make sure or to hear the uh, the full uh, and uh, and in depth journey. Um, but why don't you go ahead and uh, and share what that uh, promo code is, Breen? Absolutely. So it is Pay It Forward seventy five K. So all one word, Pay It Forward seventy five K. All right, and seventy five is the numbers, not the that part's not spilled out. So Pay It Forward right. seven. <laughs> The number seven five and then K. Uh, definitely go and uh, utilize that code and uh, and get get a great uh, entrepreneurial water bottle that we love to share. So so now with that in hand, we are going to jump to the two questions I always ask at the end of each episode. Um, so the first question I always ask is: Along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made, and what'd you learn from it? Okay, worst business decision I think I ever made was not doing my homework, which is really. Uh, remarkable because as a lawyer you literally get paid to do the homework that the people that are not lawyers don't have to do homework um so i do i am a good student i was valedictorian i do my homework but somehow when it was my own company i didn't do my homework so uh what i learned from that is that if you are going to embark on an entrepreneurial journey even if you are a lawyer and you think you know stuff go do your homework go read some of the great books that are out there that you know, that just bare bones, starting from the very beginning, what you should be thinking about when you are deciding, is this going to be an LLC? Is this going to be a C-Corp? And just thinking rationally about, about equity, thinking rationally about partnerships, uh, you know, like co-founder relationships, all of those things are, are really critically important. And if you don't do your homework, you will get in trouble. So do your homework, read the book. No, and I think that that's a great, you know, I think it's easy, you know, when you're one step removed, you're the legal counsel or that you always want to say, you know, you, your, your job is to remind people do their homework to do it. And yet when you're in the throes of wanting to do a business and you're excited about the opportunity and the idea and the path forward is always wanting to get started and get things kicked off and otherwise uh, get going. And sometimes you jump over that step that you know you should take, but you think that, you know, you're the exception to the rule. So I think that's a, an easy mistake to, to make, but a, a great one to learn from. Second question now that I ask is, if you're talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup, um, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Okay, well, I love this question. So this really helped me when I stumbled across this insight in my entrepreneurial journey. So what it boils down to is that you dramatically overestimate how much you can accomplish in any single given day, but you also dramatically underestimate how much you can accomplish over a period of time simply by showing up each day and giving it your all. So if you really like think about that, like you walk into a day, you have 40 things on your to-do list. They are all incredibly important. And if you don't do them, the sky is going to fall. You only get through 10 of them. Every day feels like that. You're crushed. It's crushing. You're like, I'm soul crushed. But then if you take this step back and you just look say three months is my favorite, you know, time period, but it probably depends on your growth stage of your startup and, you know, whatever. But you look back 
and you say, how far have I come in these last three months of all of those soul crushing days of only doing 10 things on my to-do list. And it's mind blowing how much you accomplish if you just don't quit and just don't actually let it crush your soul and just keep showing up each day and just do the things you can do on your list. <laughs> no. And I like that. And you know, and I think that that is, it's one where as you work hard and as you're going through things, especially day to day, it feels like it's, or when you're an entrepreneur, you're just continually putting out fires, which you are now yeah. you have to figure out how to, to manage that. But you know, it, once you do, you kind of lose track of all the things you have accomplished, the progress you made, the things you've got in place, all the things you've done, because you're still having to or face that day to day stuff. So I think that's a, a great uh, takeaway to every or when you're getting crushed or when you're or worn out or burned out or anything else to take that step back and, and look what you have accomplished and where things are at and the progress you made. So I think that's a great piece of advice. Well, as we now wrap up the episode, if people want to reach out to you, they want to be a customer, they want to be a client, they want to be an employee, they want to be an investor, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out to you, contact you, find out more? Yes, thank you. Um, absolute best way is to come to our website and just sign up for a platform tour. We do them every week, Mondays from noon to 1230 Eastern Standard Time. When you come to our website, which is just thefourthfloor.co, not .com, but .co, and it's all written out, no, no numbers, T-H-E-F-O-U-R-T-H-F-L-O-O-R.co. Um, it's right on the homepage. It's like right at the top of the page. You can sign up for a platform tour. If you click the button, you know, you can sign up for any Monday slot. It's just a great way to hear the backstory, see the platform, meet other um, founders, board directors, investors that are coming to that platform tour. So it's good networking in and of itself, but also get a peek inside, see how it works and um, understand which membership is right for you. And then of course you can purchase a membership as well through our website, which would be fantastic. If you know what you want, you can go buy it right now. We retroactively vet people. So you don't have to go through, you don't have to wait. You can access it right away. You know, We'll let you know within 30 days, if there's an issue, we'd refund you if you don't meet the criteria. Awesome. I definitely encourage uh, everybody to go check it out, uh, support a great uh, business, and if nothing else, make a new best friend. So, Oh, and I, I should be clear, because I don't know if everything I've said has made this clear, but if you are, if you are a company and, and you are like sub $10 million in revenue, it is very inexpensive. It is only $500 a year to join as it's a startup rate, and that includes the ability to post, to list, uh, unlimited board advisor, director, mentor, sponsor opportunities in the board seat exchange. You can use the job board. So it's a way to find talent. And if you are a woman-led or BIPOC-led startup, you can seek funding in the back room. Now that is a little more expensive, but not much. It's only $1,000 a year. Um, and that's an incredible opportunity. If you are an individual and you are interested in joining, if you are interested in advancing a for-profit board career, you can sign up and join as a board candidate where you can be matched to advisor and director board opportunities. Uh, there's also a lot of programming and resources that's available for everyone. Um, and you can also join our backroom investment club if you're interested in angel or LP investing, if you're an accredited investor. If you are an investor, you know, we also welcome you to join us in that way. If And, and uh, larger companies, we're a great professional development benefit for executives. So if you work for a large company and you want them to pay for your membership, we can help you make that happen. 
Awesome. Well, it sounds like all sorts of options that uh, fit everybody uh, for the different uh, places they're at, the different sizes and the different budgets. So definitely a, a lot of great opportunity and a lot of great ways to interact and, uh, and to support you guys. So with that, thank you again for uh, coming on the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now for all of you, their listeners that are out there, if you have your own journey to share and you'd like to be guests on the podcast, love to have you. So let's go to inventiveguest.com. Apply to be on the show. A couple more things as listeners. Make sure to click share, subscribe, leave us a review. Helps us to share these uh, awesome journeys with even more startups and small businesses to help them along their journey to success. And last but not least, if along your journey you ever need help with patents, trademarks, or anything else with your startup or your small business, just go to strategymeeting.com. Grab some time with us to chat, and we're always here to help. Well, thank you again, Breen, for coming on the podcast and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. <laughs> thank you. Pleasure to.